Considered the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On the last podcast, I interviewed Mr. Moshe Chertoff about the history and current state of Israel. On today's show, we will discuss possible solutions and how to move forward. Welcome back to the show, Moshe. How are you doing? Great. Fabulous. Thank you. Are things about the same since we last talked? Yeah, but my new granddaughter's an hour uh, older, so that's great. Well, that's exciting. When people say Mazal Tov or congratulations, I actually get the chills all the way across my back and down my down my arms. It's amazing. I never thought, I thought, okay, you'll be a grandfather. Uh-uh. This is absolutely special. For anybody who becomes a grandparent, it's fabulous. Uh, and so- I haven't even started reading Dr. Seuss to them. <laughs> okay, so before we get into specific solutions, I like to just frame the gestalt of all of this. And I have a quote, it's a long quote from scholars with the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. And then I'll get your reaction. Quote Today, neither Israel nor Palestinian leaders have an incentive to create political constituencies to back a negotiated solution. In Israel, the U.S. approach failed to create any real costs for right-wing nationalist policies, even as Israeli politics continued to leap rightward over the years. The message from Washington was that U.S.-Israel relationship should not be jeopardized by pressing Israel on its contact vis-a-vis Palestinians. In Israel, political parties coalesced around anti-Palestinian policies without fear of alienating a vital ally that was substantially aiming to broker Israeli-Palestinian peace. Among Palestinians, this incentive structure meant that political parties committed to negotiations would inadvertently undercut their own legitimate by repeatedly committing to a failed peace process that demanded much from them while Israeli settlements expanded without repercussions, end quote. Now, I realize that is a very long quote, but I thought it provided a nice context to all of this. What, what is your response to that? Well, that's a big, it's a mouthful there. Um, <laughs> yeah, something very interesting happened even today, just to give you an idea of, of the way things are developing. And I'm in favor of this. I'm actually pleased by this development. A guy reported today on the main Israeli channel that the State Department is telling, I'm quoting here, the State Department is telling all government agencies that scientific and technical cooperation with Israel beyond the green line is not consistent with the law. That's a wow. You need to clarify this a little bit for me in the audience. So the U.S. State Department is talking about the green line, which is the area where... The demarcation line of the 1948 war. And okay. it used to be it used to divide between Israel and Jordan, and Jordan reneged on their ownership of the West Bank, as we call it. In the Jews call it Judea and Samaria. And then it became in limbo because there was no Palestinian government. It wasn't part of the Israelis because we've never annexed it. It was just conquered by us and occupied by us. And the Jordanians were out of there. So now the Green Line actually represents where Israel stopped fighting in 1948 and what used to be Jordan. And that includes the border that goes and cuts Jerusalem in half. That's part of the Green Line. And it includes uh, cutting off the West, the the Golan Heights. Didn't used to be part of Israel until 1967, as were most of the conquests of ours of territory were in 1967. 57 years ago, we had a six-day war, which is continuing actually until today because we have not resolved the situations. Since you brought that up, I just feel like conflict is not strong. Conflict is like scheduling conflict, conflict with your boss. Is this conflict really a war? No. 
No, but you said the six-day war is continuing. Right. It is and it isn't, meaning we don't have masses of tanks and artillery and infantry crossing our border into is what is Israel. We've occupied territory that we conquered in 1967. And the Israeli, or especially right-wing or nationalistic justification for that is, hey, they attacked us. So we fought back and we took their property. We took all of their, their, that whole territory all the way to the Jordan River. And now you have this territory between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, which two sides are kind of fighting for the right. Okay. Those who believe, uh, yeah, so those who are religious consider it having God, God having given it to the Jews. You had you had said the U.S. State Department had made a statement about the Green Line. Can you just clarify that? Yeah. The interesting thing that happened today was that up until now, the Israeli government has always tried to be cooperating with the American government, and American government has kind of looked the other way in most cases, hasn't really stepped up against occupation, hasn't really told Israel, okay, it's time for you to get out. 57 years, we have never annexed it into Israel. We have never given it back to anybody. And when you say giving it back, so the average Israeli says, what do you mean, giving it back to who? To the Palestinians? It wasn't theirs, it was Jordan's. Who are you going to give it back to? A bunch of terrorists? Well, most of the Palestinians, the just like most Jews, are not and, terrorists. And just clarify, give what back? The West Bank. Okay, that territory that we occupied between Jerusalem and the Jordan River. There's 2 million people living right there, and there's another 2 million in Gaza. And those areas are, uh, if not occupied by Israel, because Gaza is not really occupied by Israel. We don't have soldiers in there on the ground, but we do in the West Bank. And here is one of those problems, again, by telling a muddy story about Israel. It's in Israel. No, wait a second. The occupied territories are not in Israel. They're beyond the green line. That's occupation, including the eastern part of Jerusalem, which is 21 villages. Right. No, it's not part of Israel. So right. what we're talking about is always the issue of the state of Israel versus the land of Israel. The land of right. Israel, according to the Bible, was given to Israel. What does that mean to a Palestinian? Nothing. And okay, one of these days, I hope that they will understand that we believe it, and you have to kind of respect that. And the same thing, versus, uh, vice versa. We have to understand that they don't, and we so, have to respect their... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the U.S. State Department now under Biden is saying you can't do these can't, things beyond the green line. And you can't just specifically scientific and technical cooperation. That doesn't mean you can't do all sorts of other things. And but it is it, promising, right? I mean, this is a it step. It is definitely promising. This is definitely a step in the right direction. It is antithesis to what the Trump government did. The Trump government recognized the Golan Heights as part of Israel, as Israel annexed it. And nobody else recognized that so this, until so the, the Trump government came in and said, so yeah, this, it's yours. It's okay. So this is sort of the opposite of Trump. Would this have happened under yes. Obama? Probably had time. I was part of, I, I organized a group of people from my party, from that merits party, to write the DNC back then before the 2020 elections when Biden was elected. And I say, guys, can you please, we are Israelis, patriotic Israelis who serve in the Israeli Defense Forces, et cetera. We're asking you to please state your opposition to any annexation. And we said, please, we want you to object to any annexation. And then we said, wow, we're already on a roll. Let's ask them also. Okay, can you also please put in a paragraph about your support for the uh, legitimate rights of the Palestinian people to their own future so that they can decide what they want? We didn't say state. We didn't say Palestinian state. That would be too much. And we sent it. You know, you cast your bread upon the water. Who knows? Somebody might actually read it. And it turns out it got in. It's in the Democratic platform since 2020. Those two, those two paragraphs. We okay. succeeded in getting it in. 
because I am of the belief that if the United States doesn't push, then our right-wing governments will definitely never do this. The current administration is actually in favor of progressive Israelis. Let's, let's face it. Progressive and liberal Israelis are very simply the equivalent of the Democratic Party in the United States. Does that mean the government, current administration will do everything that, that we want on, in Israel? No, not necessarily. They have to be careful. All of them also have their Jewish constituents and whatever. They don't want to lose the big donations. In the previous elections, 2016, someone put the word occupation into the DNC platform. And APAC blew it out of the water and had the, they said, you either take that word out or you're not getting any more donations from APAC. You're and done. APAC has tremendous clout. They, in the last few election cycles, they unseated some progressive Democrats in New York Correct. and other places. Do you want to just explain APAC? It's a political the, na the name, what it stands for first. American Israeli Political Action Committee. And they were, up until 10 years ago, the only American organization that supported Israel. Now, they were the only ones until J Street came along. Because it turned out that uh, APAC became more and more right wing, more and more supportive of everything and anything that Netanyahu and the right wing wanted to do. Along came people who formed what is called J Street, and they say, hey, we're pro Israeli also, but we're for the kind of Israel that we want to be proud of, not the kind of Israel that uh, Netanyahu wants or the right wing wants. So in 2016, they blew that uh, word. They, saying occupation means we're doing something wrong. Heaven forbid, we wouldn't want that in the DNC platform. So they got it taken out. And in 2020, we didn't have a prayer of getting into the DNC platform. And there it is. And we have people who are sympathetic with the left in Israel. Unfortunately, the right wing of Israel has made great connections with their community in the United States, and they get huge donations. On the left, we have been in the doldrums since 1995, since the Rabin assassination. And they've been neglecting, connecting with American liberals and progressives and I've been fighting for seven years, eight years already, telling people, hey, guys, have you ever heard of Hollywood? Have you ever heard of uh, New York? Do you know how many millionaires, multimillionaires that are there who would support everything we're doing? We're, we're doing the exact, we want to get the exact thing, same things done as the Democrats want to do in the United oh. States. Moshe, Why can't we connect with them? And that's the vast majority of Jewish voters in the United States are Democrat. I think almost- 76%. In the U.S. Senate, of the 10 Jewish members, nine are Democrats and one is an independent, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Of the 28 in the House, 26 are Democrats and two are Republicans. And on the Republican side in the United States, roughly 90% of white evangelical Christians vote Republican and about 80% voted for Trump both times. And the majority support Netanyahu, according to recent polls. To explain what you're talking about when you say evangelicals are mostly, uh, Christian evangelicals are, are mostly in favor of the right wing and supporting of the right wing in Israel, we have to remember that part of their belief is that Jesus will return after the Jews have full control of the Holy Land and their rule becomes absolute. That will bring the Messiah back. And unfortunately, the part that most Jews don't recognize or refuse to recognize is the next part is you either convert to Christianity or your dust. Well, one thing the founders of our country, the founders of our country were crystal clear about the separation of church and state, unfortunately. Oh and this is where the problems come into. I mean, we yep. have this infusion of religion in our Congress and our politics. Anyway, that's- I mean, there's any other way? That's not here. Here we have, it's absolutely mixed. 
and we have political parties that represent the ultra-Orthodox Ashkenazi. But you don't have no. a, you don't have a codified constitution that says separate exactly. We don't have any con- we don't have any constitution. That's one of our problems. Today I spoke with a right-wing friend of mine, and I said, "Look, he's trying to understand why why we're constantly fighting about all of this." And I said, "Look, because you have 64 out of 120 members of Knesset, that's a majority." And it's a decent majority. Some governments have had 61 out of 120, and that's barely cutting it. Do you mean to tell me that with 64, you actually have the right to do everything and anything you've ever wanted to do? Because that's what you're doing right now. I warn you, once we have 65, is it going to be our right to do everything and anything we ever wanted to do and just forget about you because we have the majority? No, we can't just give back the occupied territories without doing it in a process that will include everybody's and try to change the opinions in Israel and get people behind it. Without popular support, there's never going to be a, a solution of peace. Okay, well, that's, the majority that's, of Palestinians and Israelis have to get behind that. That so. is the best segue ever for me. And now I'm going <laughs> to talk about the two-state solution. I just always thought that the two-state solution was the best thing. And my understanding now, and I'm not sure, is that Netanyahu and others on the Israeli right are now opposing this. I read in Haaretz for the first time that a majority of Israelis oppose a two-state solution President Biden supports a two-state solution. President Carter tried, and you know there were talks in the 80s and 90s, and it got very close. Now it seems elusive. When I interviewed Mohammed Othman, I was very surprised. I felt kind of stupid because I kept saying, Mohammed, don't you support a two-state solution? He said, I want an independent state. I'm like, well, can't you have both? He said, no, man, you don't get it. We tried that. So not only that, he says that everybody wants a one-state solution, which is wrong. <laughs> so please clarify this I'll for try me. I'll clarify it. And Mohammed, I, I apologize if I'm contradicting what you said. I have no intention of uh, saying that you don't know or don't understand everything like I do. I am a person who says whatever solution works and so that we can end the conflict, bring it on. Unfortunately, because of the situation, that number one, among Israelis, we don't have agreement as to what solution there should be. Between Palestinians, there's not an agreement as to what solution there should be. How can we have a one-state solution? We'd be at each other's throats. I am among those who are the two-state people because I think that we have to separate from the Palestinians and get out of their faces. And if we can do it with an agreement, that's really how it should be done, as opposed to just pulling out. But on the other hand, I believe that we're going to have to pull out no matter what both for the Palestinians, but mainly as an Israeli action for Israel to stop spending that, as you said, 25% of our budget across the green line for uh, 16% of the population of the West Bank of occupied territory who are Jewish, and all of the rest are getting buckets, nothing. We have to let them do whatever they want. If they want to create a Palestinian state, great, go for it. You want our help? Here's our phone number. We'll give you any need, help you need. We'll bring in the Americans or anybody. We'll, we'll stay out of it, but just let's let's separate. And in Israel, we'll be having the money back. Did you know that soldiers are supposed to protect their borders from invasion? That's what the job of a soldier is. Guess what our soldiers do? They police, and they don't even do that well. They walk, in the last few days, they've walked along with uh, hilltop youth who are the most uh, malicious and vicious of the settlers who go and do price tag attacks against Palestinians, innocent Palestinians. What, what What is a price tag attack? A price tag attack is when a Jew gets injured or killed, then there are the uh, extremists on the far right wing who will go into an Arab village within Israel, an Arab village in the occupied territories. They'll burn homes, they'll burn cars, they'll puncture the tires of an entire village, 
Like eye for an eye, but several yeah, eyes exactly. for an eye. Yeah. If everybody keeps on with the eye for an eye, we're all going to be blind. You can't continue with that. What you have to do is embrace those who oppose the violence on their side, and on you have to embrace those who oppose the violence on your side. You have to look for reaching each other's vision of we are all human. Let's figure out how we're going to uh, make this work because we're not leaving and you're not leaving. So let's so, figure uh, out how we're going to continue. So on the two-state solution, I'm trying to understand why Israelis oppose it. My understanding from Muhammad and other Palestinians is one of the reasons they oppose it is because, like, who's going to divide it up? We can't even go down and look at the sea right now. Are they going to get right. the sea? Are we going to get the food deserts? Are they going to get okay. the part? You know, so that how do you answer that? Who's going to make who's going to divide it up? And how is everybody going to agree? Now, obviously, it has to be agreed upon by both sides. And to me, I couldn't care if it was the Pope or if it was uh, Joe Schmo. It doesn't matter to me who's going to do it. In my opinion, as being the editor of the post-production version of the Geneva Initiative Final Status Agreement, I know exactly how it's going to happen. And these have to be agreements. In other words, we are it, it's already agreed upon. I mean, we've gotten down to the most finite details, even of uh, frequencies in the air. Who's going to get these frequencies on AM, FM, shortwave, air, air, airplane uh, frequencies, you know, all that sort of stuff, where the water is going to come from and where it's going to go, where the sewage is going to flow and whatever. And the biggies have, have been taken care of in this agreement. If we let the large settlement blocks remain and we only vacate the others, we, there will be 60% of settlers will be staying where they are. The rest are going to have to leave. And for that area, let's say that there's a 10-mile, square-mile area that's a city that's going to remain, the Palestinians will get another 10 miles somewhere else along the border from our side. So what is this two-state solution called that's already written down that you're talking this about? Isn't a two, well, this is not only a two-state solution, but this is called the Geneva Initiative Final Status Agreement. It was signed in 2003 by generals, chiefs of staff, and, and intellectuals, and, and all sorts and it goes into the fine details. So for instance, the biggies, the two big ones that are the, the points of contention here are what is going to be the status of Jerusalem and what is going to be the status of the refugees? How many are going to be able to come back or how are they going to be able to come back? Are they going to get reparations? Are they going to be accepted in their home countries that have been hosting them for so many years? So I know all of the details of this. That's possibly for some other podcast. If you want me to present that whole agreement, it's very interesting. I've done so this. It was, so it was signed, but not ratified? It was signed by representatives playing as if they were the government. The gov both governments, the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government, knew that they were doing this. Shimon Peres was aware of it. It was his assistant that was running the Israeli side. Abu Mazen knew about it, and his assistant, Abba Drabo, was the representative of the Palestinian side. And there was a group of like 20 or 30 from each side, and they actually whittle it all down, say, can you live with this? And they say, no, we need this much more here, and we'll give you that on the other hand. Okay, and then they signed it. So on the Israeli for it to be ratified on the Israeli side, would it just be Netanyahu who could sign it or the a majority no, no, of the no, 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 no. no, let's put it this way. No peace agreement that's signed just by the governments is ever going to hold water. So it'll fall okay. apart very quick. You have to do the footwork to convince the majority of the people in each country have to understand how it is to their benefit, how their lives will be changed for the better as a result of such an agreement. Do you have ballot measures there? No, we don't have initiatives. For instance, you can just say, we're going to have elections. I'm the guy who's going to represent those who approve of the Geneva Initiative and its yeah. corrections throughout the years because things have changed since 2003. And I'm the guy who's going to represent those who are against it. Now, there are two types of people, I think, in Israel. There are people who are for doing what it takes to make an agreement. And there are those who will never give up 
because they know that their side is right. And if you didn't notice, notice. I wasn't talking about either Palestinians or Israelis. There are both on both sides. I have friends who live in East Jerusalem, and these are areas supposedly part of Israel as uh, municipally annexed into Israel. And who runs the, those areas? The groups of either pro-Hamas or pro-Islamic Jihad or just young people who've decided that they're going to go and they're going to take up guns and they're going to make life miserable for everybody else. And my friends won't let their children step out of it. In Jerusalem, this is so-called Jerusalem, so-called the undivided United, united uh, capital of the, of the historic capital of Israel. Well, it ain't united. The fact that we just annexed it doesn't make it united. We haven't invested in anything there. The streets are a disaster. The lighting's a disaster. There's no swimming pools there. Their schools are falling apart and whatever. What are you expecting them to say thank you? Yeah. Come on. And they think that, and they contend that the left are, are naive. <laughs> I mean, really? Are you just waiting for it all to explode? Because it will. And guess what? That's what's happening right now. What needs to happen in Israel to address this disturbing trend we talk about, about, I think it's a crisis of violence against Arabs in Israel. Um, and violence against the left. There is violence against the left. There are ultra-nationalists. You mean, you mean violence in Israel against yes. leftist, leftist Israelis? Israelis, yes. Okay. Jews and Arabs, yes. Um, so on this um, solution to the violence, what yes. do you think can happen? What we're talking about is the basis of democracy. When there is no democracy, there can be no real justice. There is no democracy in occupation, and there is no occupation in democracy. Unless we have a democratic system, then the occupation will continue, and we won't be able to stop it. Unfortunately, that's the case. In, in, in Jerusalem, there are the ultra-nationalists who walk down the main streets of Jerusalem. I have three kids in Jerusalem. The ultra-nationalists walk down the street, and if they hear anybody speaking Arabic, they'll walk over and club them. Oh my beat God, them. If they see a Jewish girl being approached by an Arab, they'll beat the crap out of the guy. I was a, I stood on the in in the Western Galilee for three years straight every week, handing out flowers for tolerance and against racism. The Western Galilee is majority non-Jewish, full of Druze, Muslims, Christians. And this is where you live, right? That's where I live. I live on the coast where it's mostly Jewish, but up in the hills, the wet the hills of the Galilee is not Jewish. And we get along great. Excuse the expression. Some of my best friends are Arabs and Druze and whatever. I'm serious when I say that. Some of my best friends. That's the way we exist up here. There is no division. There's no problem. When you get to Jerusalem, everything all of a sudden becomes real touchy. I know the guy, the first Palestinian who's going to put himself up for elections to be the mayor of Jerusalem. The first time we actually are, are hopefully going to succeed in getting the Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem, so to speak, to come out and vote. And we want them to vote for him and his party. Up until now, the Palestinian Authority has frowned on that because it sounds like you're normalizing the conquest, the, the occupation here. But finally, Abu Mazen has given the green light and said, you know what? These people have to have some rights. They have to have a good life. Get into the municipality and do what is right for the people who do, do you have to, can do you have same day registration do you have to be registered no. to vote or how does anybody can just show up and vote you have to double check before the elections that your name appears on the voting list doesn't matter where i mean you should check to see that but they're not having name. voter suppression like in the united no. states where they no, they're having a different a different type they're trying the exact same methods the Likudnikans, okay. as i call them are trying the exact same games where they started for instance during this five election cycle they all of a sudden started showing up in the election buildings with cameras and they said yeah we're gonna we're gonna make sure that everything here is uh, kosher so to speak we're gonna show that you're cheating 
to try intimidation. To Same thing that's happening. Absolutely, with the MAGA. Oh, it's it so started sad. back in 1964 with Rehnquist in Arizona, and it's happening in Jerusalem and all throughout Israel now. Did you remember Bibi's famous words? His famous sentence was very simple. In the day before the elections, it appeared to him he was going to lose. He came out with a statement saying. Okay, everybody, if you really love Israel, you have to get out there and vote because I heard that the European countries are providing buses to bus all of the Arabs to come and vote and kick us out of power. Absolutely no truth to it. Absolutely none. And guess what? It worked. And he got all of his his people to pound their chests and say, we won't allow this. We're going to go out and vote. And I wonder if that got exported here or if it's just back and forth. But it's, yeah. it, Like I said, Bibi's taught them some things. Uh, let's right. face it. He knows what he's doing. He ain't no stupid. I wish that we could get buses to bus Arabs to go and vote. Unfortunately, because they're so uh, disenfranchised, they don't come out in the numbers or the percentages that Jews come out and vote. Once we can do that, we'll change. Well, you have to convince them, A, that their vote matters, B, that it will be counted, that they won't be harassed. And Tim, you know, same Not only that, but not only that the vote matters, but as a result of the vote, they're going to get something that they finally deserve as, as equal citizens in a democratic state. That is the okay. basis. Without okay, that, so, but why should they vote? All right, back to the crime. What is the okay? So I, I heard that this um, Netanyahu's pick for the minister who handles the crime is a problem. Is right. that what you agree? Okay, that's right, Mr. Ben Gvir, as we mentioned before, he's right. a, he he was a convicted. He was convicted of supporting a terrorist organization, and now he's running the police department. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me. So it sounds like as long as he's in there, this is going to continue, right? Is that? Well, it'll only get worse. BB has to feed him. If BB doesn't feed him, he'll say, uh, uh, I'll pull out of your government and you won't have those 61. You'll be down to 50 something. And guess what? You'll be out of a job. And if you're out of a job, you're not going to be able to stay out of court, which means you're not going to be able to stay out of prison. You're going to go to prison. So you better take good care of me. That's this whole thing. This whole five election cycle was because BB did not want to have to go to court. Because he knows that once he gets into court, it's very possible that one of the four allegations against him will prove that he's guilty and he will be removed from office and he'll have to go to jail. He doesn't want that. What crimes do you think he committed or is he accused he's of been, uh, corruption and uh, abuse of office, something like something like that? And then there's this minor matter of the fact that he ordered submarines from Germany that the entire defense establishment said, we don't need those. We should save that money for other things that we really need. We don't need other submarines. He made the deal. His cousin made a couple a couple million and his other cronies also got a, a couple. This is going to go to court. And this is heavy duty stuff. He actually approved that the Egyptian Navy will get German submarine technology to make the Germans approve giving it to us. In other words, one of our former major enemies and someone who, if there's a revolution in Egypt, could easily turn against us, he's giving them the same technology that we're getting? I mean, you really call yourself a patriot? Has he become very personally wealthy while in office? Of course, of course. Not only that, but what here's an interesting thing you probably didn't know about the Democratic camp. It, the Democratic camp is not made up of lefties only. There are right-wingers who used to be in Bibi's party and who were his friends and have figured out that this guy has lost it and they're out of there. They're going to oppose him no matter what he does. And I'm talking about people who are real occupation supporters, who are people who really don't love Arabs very much, to say the least. And these are people who are in the Democratic camp because they hate Bibi. He's pissed a lot of people off. Oh, yeah. But when are the chickens going to come home to roost, Moshe? This is one of the issues that stands before us. Should he actually get convicted or not and leave office, then the whole right might again 
lift itself up again and all come together and be a majority. On the other hand, if we succeed in getting the Israeli Arab population to vote in the numbers that they should, there will not be a right-wing government at this time. The um, demographics will work against us in 20 years when the ultra-Orthodox who are having between 6 and, and 11, 12 kids, they will then eventually start voting and we're, we're going we're gonna to lose it. I am an, uh, an optimist, have you know? But in other words, I'm saying that who served in the Rabin government? Who were the three parties that were in, in the Rabin government? There was the Labour Party, which was Rabin himself. There was Meretz, my party, the left of Israel. And there was Shas, the ultra-Orthodox uh, uh, Sephardic Jews. And they were part of the government that was working toward peace. And when they said, wait, 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 what's going on here? This is, you're going too far with this peace stuff. We're going to leave the government. We said, no, 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 no. The Meretz Party had some of the best ministers in the history of Israel. We said, we'll leave. You stay in. We'll keep the government floating. We will back the government in all votes, and you continue working toward peace as long as you can. Is that good with you? They said, yes. And we continued to support the government from outside. We had the best uh, uh, minister of education ever in the history of the country, and, and everybody on the right will tell you that also, except the ultra-Orthodox. Now, when obviously it continued to work in that direction, somebody on the extreme right took a gun and shot him and assassinated him. That was the end of that. And now that Shas party, that ultra-Orthodox uh, Sephardic, have gone to the right. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean they won't come back. Their main rabbi back then said, people's lives are more valuable than rocks or buildings. So, and he's absolutely right. But that's not the way they're thinking today. They're thinking about how they're going to get enough money to support their education system. So that they'll keep educating kids into the system where, you know, it becomes a, a, a it, it's a waterfall and continues to flow downstream where they're going to not have equality for women. There's not going to be rights for uh, the LGBT plus uh, uh, community, et cetera. This is happening in the United States. But so is the right. So the right's moving further to the right. Is the left moving to is everybody moving to the right in Israel? No, I wouldn't put it that way. Not even the politicians are all moving to the right. Many of the politicians have gone to the center, not because they believe more of the right wing stuff, but they believe that you must be strong enough to be able to fight Bibi, which is there really, there's two main parties. You mentioned Gantz, uh, you didn't mention uh, Yair Lapid is the other guy who, there are two personalities that are leading personality parties, and they don't have an agenda and they don't have any real ideology. Their only ideology is to get rid of Netanyahu. And let's say that Netanyahu leaves. What is their platform going to be? This is why we need a new left in Israel. So do you think he's holding on by a thread? And do you think this will collapse on him and he'll be out of How long do you think he'll stay in power? I wouldn't say that he's holding on by a thread because he knows how to feed his uh, extremists. And he will not. Now, that means that the people from his party, the Likud party, are getting less than what they were promised because more and more is going to the extremists, to the ultra-Orthodox and to the ultra-nationalists. So that could implode on him. He's doing what is necessary to keep the coalition together, which means keep him out of the, the courts, which means keeping him out of jail. Does the PM have term limits? Unfortunately, no. Why? Okay. Think we need a constitution? Oh, that would be a good idea. <laughs> well, you can have term limits without a, un, without a codified yes, constitution. No, we need a constitution because the first thing we need to do is separate between church and state or synagogue and state, however you want to call it. Well, we have that in writing, but it isn't happening. So, Well, yeah, it's, it's disintegrating. But on the other hand, also, you have a lower house and an upper house. 
Yes. We don't have a lower house. We have only national parties. Most countries do have a lower and upper house. It's time for us to have a house, which is the lower house representing locales, the Western yeah. Galilee having representatives for the needs of the Western Galilee. That yeah, you really need that. You really need that. Let's get working on that. So come on over and help us. Yeah, I'm working on that. I, I'm doing a lot of different things. Do you, you have your Fox News in, in the States, right? And mm. you have your MSNBC? Well, we have our Fox News in Israel. It's called Channel 14, but we don't have our MSNBC. I'm working on that also. It's I also heard news. that the settlers have their own newspapers and their own oh, media. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. So yeah. they don't have well, to. I, I have to admit, it's not necessarily of their doing. Let's face it. And this is one of the same problems that exists in Brazil, in Hungary, in England, and all throughout the world. And that is that the social media have algorithms that feed you and I things that we they know that we will like. We all have to understand and realize that there are algorithms out there that are, are feeding us what we want to hear, which means that we only know what we want to hear, and we only believe what we want to believe. And now it's time for you and I, forget them, you and I have to reach out to the people on the other side and explain to them, okay, Israelis, right wing? Okay, great. I, I'm happy for you. Since 1977, when the right wing took power, when Begin took power and it's continued almost uninterrupted until today, how has your situation improved? Are the development towns in the exterior of the country, are they any better off than they were before? No. Are the slums in the country any better off than they were before? No. In fact, they've been evicted and their situation has become worse. How are the Holocaust survivors being taken care of any better? No. I never imagined after having five kids that none of them would be able to afford living in my community. Unbelievable. None of them can afford to build to buy a, a, a lot of land. And yes, we get lots, whereas the Arab population does not get new lots and new zoning and whatever. Yeah, but they get a lot of land, but you have to be a millionaire to be able to afford it. And so what's happening is, I, what, what was I having five kids for? Let me have at least one of them live next to us and be able to take care of us when we get really old and can't do that on our own. But I mean, our community will fall apart. There isn't any. So what we've done is we've opened ourselves up to people who are never really into the idea of kibbutz, but they find it like a very decent lifestyle, a very uh, good way of living. Just like there are a lot of settlers who are not right wing extremists who got I, great deals at a half price for for you know of what they would have afforded in Israel. They get twice of what they would have gotten within Israel. All they got to do is cross the green line and go live on somebody else's land, and they did it. And unfortunately, they don't understand that they're part of the problem. That's the way it goes. Can I tell a joke? <laughs> Try. Let's go for it. Well, the, the Jewish women in the United States said, we have, we want to have one child, but we have two in case one doesn't turn out to be a doctor. <laughs> I have five. Go for that. And, we, <laughs> and then we adopted one, a sixth. Wow. But anyway, yeah. Can you just explain what a kibbutz is? The idea was when you didn't start with the Industrial Revolution and, and eventually down the road make millionaires out of some people and keep everybody else working at hard physical labor, et cetera. What happened was Israel came out of a Zionist movement that was started in the 1800s about a biblical goal saying that the Jews had a homeland 2,000 years ago. And you can either believe that God gave it to us or not. It doesn't matter. This is really where we should go. In fact, we were offered an area in Uganda. We were offered an area in the Soviet Union. We said, no, no, no. This is, this is the place that we should be. This is our homeland. And so people came in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and especially in huge numbers after the Holocaust and came to live in Israel. And what did they have, those who came from the Holocaust? Zilch, nada, nothing. They had what was on their backs, and they were lucky to get away with that. And I happened to live in a community which had the highest percentage of Holocaust survivors anywhere in the world outside of Eastern Europe. 
over 95% of the people who formed my kibbutz in right after the Declaration of Independence in 1948, they were Holocaust survivors. What did they have? Nothing. And now we have this huge memorial at our cemetery that shows the family names with the lists of people from their families that, that were murdered. Those people who came here and didn't come to a kibbutz by coincidence, they joined a movement, the Socialist Zionist movement that I mentioned in the first uh, half of our discussion, which had its goal in living as farmers and simple people on the land and everybody living in an egalitarian style, life, a lifestyle, driving for equality. Nobody's equal to anybody else. That's for sure. That's understandable. But we always have to strive for the equality of women, for the equality of older people and younger people. Everybody deserves all that they need, not necessarily everything they ever wanted, because that's not part of socialism. Socialism is making sure that nobody goes without. R- roughly, roughly how many percentage of Israelis live in kibbutz? Less than 2%. Okay. And today's and- kibbutz is not kibbutz anymore. It is privatized so that uh, what happened, what used to be is uh, I eventually became a truck, uh, a tractor trailer operator. And I used to love to leave at three in the morning, drive to the other side of Israel, you know, three hour, four hour drive, unload, reload, come back, come home, take a shower, go have lunch, and then wait for the time where I go pick up my kids. It was great. I'd eat three meals a day that was cooked by the kibbutz and the, the, my plates and everything, all the, all the dishes and everything were washed by the kibbutz. My Sounds nice. was done by the kibbutz. <laughs> Well, don't forget, it ain't free. It's not like I was getting away with anything. I worked my butt off. Right. And from the money that I made for the commune, so to speak, for the kibbutz, it paid for my child's education, for his upbringing. It paid for the green uh, landscaping all around me. You have beautiful lands on the kibbutz. It paid for the running of a swimming pool that was built by the reparations money from Germany of all of the survivors. Anyway, all of this happened. And then what happened was we decided uh, an official decision not to remain among ourselves and only unto ourselves. We decided that everything we do has to, our children have to go into the army and be part of Israeli society. If they're going to want, they're going to be able to go out and study higher education. In other words, our kids are going out and meeting up with those who are not on kibbutz. And up until then, everybody had gone through the youth movement, which taught and raised us to be this kind of a socialist person who really worked for everyone, not for himself. When I came on LAI, I wasn't allowed to bring my color TV or anything else. So it was for the good of all. Thank you for explaining, Kibbutz. I want to just try to get into some solutions. So you talked about what Israelis can do to sort of put the brakes on this. What can Arab nations do to help? And what are they doing? I happen to fall into a wonderful situation. It's hard for me to believe that this is actually a possibility. I mentioned the fact that I'm working, I, I've met with the, the head of the Hadash party, the main Arab party in the country. Ayman Ode is the man's name. And he introduced me to an idea and to my friends from the uh, form of Israeli peace NGOs. He said, I want you guys to get ready. Prepare yourselves. I'm going to talk to Abu Mazen. He and I will arrange a visit for all of us to go and visit MBS, yes. Okay, just to explain who Abu Mazen is, and MBS is Saudi Arabia, okay. Right, Abu Mazen is the head of the Palestinian Authority, mainly from the Al-Fatah or PLO factions within the uh, Palestinian Authority. He has worked in conjunction with Israeli government for security reasons and whatever, and Israel's done pretty much everything it could all the way along the way to weaken him so that uh, he wouldn't have too much power. And today, we're paying the price of that because he doesn't have almost any power to do almost anything in the Palestinian territories anymore. He's been overtaken 
and he'll be lucky if he can continue to survive. And I hope we can figure out how we're going to do that. This is possibly the way we're going to do that. And I'm not doing it just for him. I'm doing it for the general good of the world. And this is an amazing thing that this guy's talking about. Ayman Ode is the head of that party. He said, I'm going to get Abu Mazen from the Palestinian Authority. We're going to get in touch with MBS, and we're going to go to Riyadh and speak with him and convince him that average Israelis and Palestinians want him to bring the Arab League, the entire world population of Arabs with him, behind him, and recognize Israel's right to exist within defensible borders. And that will mean that we'll also have to work out some peace plan, be it Geneva Initiative or whatever, and we're going to end this thing. And how is that going to happen? It's well, let me just happen. ask you, what is Saudi Arabia's position on this? Exactly. Or... <laughs> Saudi Arabia, this is, if you thought it was complex until now, it gets really tricky here. The United States government has been pressuring the Saudis to somehow get behind ending the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians because they have the money. They're going to help bring everybody and everybody's going to put their part into the kitty. And we're going to make the economics of this work so that the Palestinians will be getting a fabulous deal. We'll be unlocking the boycotts against Israel. And we're going to break down BDS because there ain't going to be a reason for it anymore. We're going to end the conflict. And it's going to be through MBS. And then I told Ayman Ode, I said, guess what? Netanyahu's not going to let you do this. However good it might seem, what a great idea it is, you have to convince him he's got to be willing to do this. He'll be shocked by his, his supporters. They're not going to let him, do, they're going to say, you're, you're a traitor. How can you be doing this? That's where Biden comes in. And the American progressives are going to get back. And hopefully I'm going to have a word also with Biden. And we're going to say, we're going to help you make this happen. But what about the complications of, of Saudi Arabia right now with their horrible, you know, the, the there, tension there, we have? The tension um, in the Saudi. I'm not a great friend of. And no, I'm talking about the tension wrong. between the United States and Saudi. That's right. This is okay. where it's going to work out. Is Biden's going to say to MBS, "Okay, let me take care of this." He's going to go to Bibi and he's going to say, "Mr. Netanyahu, MBS wants to come and visit." And guess what? You're going to agree to have him come. We're not going to say you have to agree to everything he's going to suggest, but you have to let him come and remind Israelis who almost never noticed it that back in 2002 there was a plan to recognize the state of Israel. And the PLO Charter has already recognized a defensible state of Israel, you know, of Israel within defensible borders and everything. And you're going to allow him to come. And you will be a hero just for having allowed him to come. Biden will be telling Bibi this. And he's going to say, and Bibi, guess what? If you don't accept his coming to visit, it's going to cost you deep, deeply. We are not going to be able to continue. So is it your view? So it, would it be your view then? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Would it be just catastrophic if, if President Biden did not get reelected? Because if he didn't get reelected, it would be a hard right, you know, Republican. Absolutely. And we know that if it's not going to be Trump for whatever reason, because he might get stuck in court or, or in prison or whatever, and it turns out to be DeSantis. So that's uh, even more extreme than he is. But at least you can predict how extreme he is. With and DeSantis his, is smarter. DeSantis, smarter. But on the other hand, he is extreme right. Oh, yeah. And it's going to be a real it's totalitarian. He's banning books. He's banning drag. He's taking away teachers' rights, parents' rights. I mean, Doing all those things a good Americans should do. No, <laughs> I'm sorry to be facetious. But yes, it's going to be horrific. And again, we're talking about the Likudnikans. It's the same thing if the if Bibi leaves office and the extreme right then take over here and the extreme right take over in America, it's going to be uh, slim pickings. So all roads lead to Saudi Arabia. Is that what you're uh, saying? Peace with the Palestinian goes through Riyadh. Riyadh goes through Washington. It ain't going to happen any other way. And I hopefully will be part of making that happen. That's a goal of mine. I'm working on it actually every day. 
And if it works out, I will be one of the proudest people in the world. So if it doesn't I'm, work out, you're going to say, I told you so. <laughs> I'm just curious. So the, the people you know that are expats that can vote, do they send like contributions to Biden? Are they on board with that? I mean, they're not sending them to... We uh, have two organizations in Israel of expats. There's the Democrats abroad in Israel and the Palestinian territories. And then there's also the Republicans abroad. The Republicans abroad is not a democratic party. They don't vote for their uh, people who hold office and represent them in Israel. It's a business deal. The guy who represents them gets paid for it. And in Democrats abroad, it's all voluntary. And our only goal as Democrats abroad is to get Americans to vote in right, yeah. elections. Not necessarily Democrats, to get Americans in Israel to vote. That's important. Democrats are the minority among Americans in Israel. That's a, an unfortunate reality. The most of the people who've come here to live in the last 30 years at least have been right-wingers I want you to remember something about the right-wing Americans in Israel. They'd stirred up the situation with Rabin before his, before his assassination. I'll never forget, there was a 4th of July celebration of Americans and Canadians living in Israel, AACI. And Rabin came, and it was the first time you saw on TV someone rush up and spit on him and try to tear him apart, and his bodyguards kept the guy at bay. And I was appalled that an American... Out of all people, an American should do such a thing. Down the road, he was assassinated. Mm. And it began when, or at least we saw it begin, with the Americans' right wing living in Israel. Is it because of who's moving there, the more extreme? Like that they called them the Likudnikans, and they are the 22% of American Jews. And they have, they're all organized very well, mostly around their synagogues. They meet every day, if not every week. And the secular Jews in America don't meet every day or even every week, sometimes twice a year, Rosh Hashanah, and who knows what the other time is. And we're not organized. So we never actually put it together to support the left in Israel. Because without your support, we're not only going to lose elections, we're going to lose Zionism. Right. Our to that, Zionism, not the Zionism of Ben Gvir. Yeah, Our one Zionism. of the, Right. One of, sorry to interrupt, but there's a lot going on here. One of the, the academic that I interviewed, she said, with all of this social media and the right, the right is on 24-7, all around the year, all the time, and the left only gets involved when it's election season, and they only pay attention then, and they only reach out to their base. So this is a problem, I guess, in Israel too, right? Correct, and the we know that the time where it worked was when Obama came along, and all of a sudden everybody said, oh, really? We could have a black man as president? Wow, I'm going to get behind that. And that's what got them really enthralled and, and got them out of their seats to go vote and also go out and, and campaign for Obama. But yeah. the thing is, Moshe, then we had this unexpected backlash. I mean, the backlash, the racist backlash, the Tea ball. Party movement, which was not organic, it was the Koch brothers. But all of that was just, you yeah, know, we blew it. And you know how we blew it? And I, by the way, I, I wrote this to everybody who was supporting Hillary Clinton at the time. And I was a Bernie supporter, but it didn't matter. I was going to vote for her anyway. And I said, Hillary, two weeks before the election, Hillary, go to Idaho. Put your hands into the soil, pull some potatoes out of the ground, get your hands dirty, and then on your way back home, stop in West Virginia, get your hands full of coal, and you're going to start making gestures in the direction of people who feel like they're being taken advantage of in their lives and life. Yeah, the Democrats have ignored, have ignored rural America. That's she didn't right. go to Wisconsin, and she, yep. she wondered why she, she didn't get the turnout in Milwaukee. But and guess what? If you don't tell people in West Virginia that as a result of our having closed the energy suppliers of America, the coal industry, 
and you are out of not only a job, you're out of a future and you don't have a future for your kids, guess what we're going to do? Every alternative energy system now will be having its headquarters mandatory in West Virginia. And what's ironic is her husband went out to rural America and said, I feel your pain, but okay, this is a rabbit hole. (laughs) No, no, we ignored them and we ignored the right in Israel also. I have to let my right wing friends and those who are religious say, I understand you. Right. We can't write people off and we have to say, what are your needs? How can we make this work together? There was an interesting thing that happened in this last election. Although we lost, I was supporting a woman who's a Haredi woman, an ultra-Orthodox woman from England who's lived in Israel for many years, and she was running on my party's platform, on the Merits Party platform. And she said, I find nothing incongruent between what Merit says and what I was taught about how the Torah teaches us to live. They're perfectly in sync. And most people don't understand that. Most people can't believe that, and they'll say all of the Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox are all right-wingers. It's mostly true but not entirely true. And once we can reach out to those who are ultra-Orthodox and say, hey, you remember this part of the Torah? You remember this part of the Torah? Those are also important things. You can't pick and choose which parts of the Torah you want. Now, if you still want to believe in the Torah, that's fine, but don't discount the parts you don't like. Yeah, yeah the algorithms that you the algorithms that you talked about put us extreme blue, extreme right, and group think and all that, but the Democratic Party in the United States is very heterogeneous. There's conservative... Yeah. Yeah. you know everything but uh, okay so we've done a lot of rabbit holes but we like rabbits bunny rabbits and it's good <laughs> i like them live i'm a vegetarian <laughs> so we talked about what the united states can do so what can european nations do to help well there are there are organizations in european countries and the irony of it is that many of the german ones are the most outstanding german in terms of what used to be nazis and what almost got rid of the Jewish people, they're the most powerful in stepping forward and trying to protect and build up democratic bases and foundations in Israel and trying to support pluralism in Israel. And they need to make it very clear to Israeli governments, as Biden administration did yesterday, that they will not accept continuing for another 57 years or who knows how long. Every human deserves the right to try to rule his or her own destiny. You cannot take that away from people. We, we took over the land in 67. By 68, we should have been out of there one way or another with an agreement or annexed it. But we cannot cont- let these 2 million people live in limbo where they're not free to go out, do whatever they want, study wherever they want, vacation wherever they want. They're not allowed, to, as, as our friend Mohammed is not allowed to come to the beach in Tel Aviv. That's sad. I mean, I almost cried when he told me that. So I'm not saying that we have to be one state. I hope that after two states along the way, we will find the way to actually begin to understand each other. We don't have to love each other. We have to learn to live together. I'm just, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what the different countries, like we talked about Europe, what about the two most populous countries, China and India? Do they have a position on this? India has become a friend of Israel, mainly because it's in our military industrial needs to sell. Why not sell to the biggest army, the biggest country and whatever to China? We're not going to be able to do that because they have to represent the progressive uh, countries in the world who are against Israel at the current time. And so that won't work. Our arms industry, unfortunately, is one of the best arms industries in the world. Yeah. Which uh, I say, I, I shouldn't say unfortunately, because partially due to that, I've been able to sleep at night. In this last little uh, skirmish we had, I remember four missiles, if I'm, no, seven missiles came into the north of Israel from Lebanon. Oh, wow. I actually prepared my safe room. We have a 
in every if you have a if you're building a building today or if you're adding on to your building at least one square meter in other words three square feet you must also build a safe room which is entirely concrete and you i i already started preparing the room i closed the steel windows on the room and had the tv on and i was ready at any minute to go running into there with my wife we finally have one we have a new house that we moved into almost two years ago and for the first time in our lives, we have a place where we can actually be safe. We couldn't run to bomb shelters because we have 30 seconds from when we hear an air raid siren till a, a missile is going to hit. And it was scary stuff. And uh, now we have the ability. We have Iron Dome that we're selling to people all of a sudden, including to the uh, Ukrainians and to anybody else who wants to be able to defend themselves against the Russians or the Chinese or anybody else who's going to be China Has China taken sides on this? Not terribly, but on the other hand, they don't have to like they don't have to do that in almost any other countries in the world. They do it very simply. They buy the port, they control your everything coming into your country. They buy the uh, tra train service, they'll take care of that. They'll build your trains, they'll build your your infrastructure, and then you owe them. And that's what's been happening in Latin America and all throughout the world. They're very generous with what they'll give you, but there is a cost down the line, as if there isn't with the United States. As if the United States just does things uh, with benevolence, and you know that's great. But we no, no clean hands, no clean hands, Moshe. No, no, no. So we have to wrap up. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about that we didn't cover? I know we zigzagged a lot. Well, we did, and to tell you the truth, I haven't really followed as to what we didn't touch on. Well, I mean, we. Oh covered... yeah, let me let me talk about this. Okay. I like the people, including uh, Muhammad, who said, "Yeah, we've tried this before." And Israelis tell me, yeah, we've tried this. You're talking about the two-state solution, right? Any solution, any peace, <laughs> an <laughs> okay. attempt to make peace. Oh, we've tried that before. I said, are you serious? We really tried? I mean, we actually started moving in that direction, and someone assassinated the guy who was going to do it. Ever since then, we haven't tried, and we only got maybe a third of the way. How has it worked out that we've tried so many times with war? Has that really worked out good for us? How many Israelis have died? How many Palestinians? How many Jordanians, Syrians, Lebanese? But come on. When I asked him about the two-state solution, he's like, come on, man, we tried that area A, area B, area C, and I, okay, I didn't. So, so that wasn't done right. And as Oslo was not done properly, Oslo, and by the way, let's make the distinction between the Oslo process and the Geneva process. Oslo was step-by-step. Step. How did you move on to the next step when the previous step succeeded? Why did the previous step, sec, uh, step never succeed? Because the crazies on our side or the crazies on their side either blew up buses or went into mosques and killed people or whatever. It was constantly dependent on how we progress by steps, and we couldn't progress by steps. Geneva dismisses the idea of steps. Once a, an agreement, let's say the Geneva Initiative is signed, three months after that, it's done. All claims are finished. There are no more claims either against Israel or against now. Many will say that, okay, we're going to be giving Palestinians reparation money for the homes that they will not uh, move into because they've been occupied by people, whatever. Guess what? After that's done, how about the Iraqi Jews and the Moroccan Jews and all of the Jews who had to leave their countries without anything except what they had on their backs in 1948? Because the Arab world is not happy about a state of Israel coming up. And uh, these people were attacked. There were many Iraqi Jews massacred in the days of 1948. And guess what? They deserve reparations also. Let's be truthful. Bill, no matter if Everybody you know and everybody I know accepts it. All you need is one crazy guy with a bomb yeah. or a gun to go and blow everything up. And they'll, everybody will point to you who opposed it and they'll say, you see, yeah. we got out of Gaza. What did we get? Missiles. Yeah, but how did you get out of Gaza? Ariel Sharon said, okay, we're leaving. Destroy everything that we had here. Do what you can to help these people and say, 
If you need anything else, here's our phone number. We're out of here. And we'll leave you your airport, but we're going to watch every plane that comes in, so be very careful. We're going to check your boats before the... Everything we did was to get people in Gaza angry at us. How should we be in a situation where we should be assuming that they're going to be thankful to us for having gotten out? They're going to assume that, well, we finally beat their asses out of here. It's about time. They never did anything good for us. It just became too bloody for Israelis to be able to continue living in Gaza. Okay. And too many Israeli soldiers were dying protecting them. So we have so how, do you, how do you see that? We got to wrap up. How do you see this playing out in the next five or 10 years? Anybody who tells you either doesn't know anything or is lying to you. Does it depend heavily on Saudi Arabia and the United States? I wouldn't say it depends on, because who would have thought that MBS would be talking about naturalization, naturalizing the relations with Israel 10 years ago, five years ago? Nobody would have said, what? Saudi Arabia? They hate us. So they're the only Arab country, it sounds like, that would is a possibility in this regard? Is no, that... no, no. We have the Abrahamic Accords. They also have big hunks of money. We were in good relations with the Yemenites, and we were in good relations with all sorts of people. That doesn't mean they love us. But I'm never discounting any possibility that something might work out. And I will reiterate, I am an optimist. And I've been okay. living here since 1974, but we've got to get this over with. And every show, I like to end on a positive note. So you're an optimist. I'm an optimist. So what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about the Israeli people like I've never been before. Because even those who are on the right, but are part of our pro-democratic camp, understand the necessity to do things in a humane way and in a democratic way. That if you don't do either of those, if it's either undemocratic or inhumane, it ain't going to work. It's only a matter of how long we will go along with Bibi's idea that we will forever live by the sword. No, thank you. No, thank you, Mr. Netanyahu. We have other ways of doing this. Just step aside and we'll make progress here. People now are realizing that we don't have to accept everything that he says as God's truth. And that that is optimistic, Moshe, because if the people lead, the politicians will follow. That's an old quote. So maybe. Maybe. Not necessarily. I don't take anything for granted. Right. Politicians can be the best politicians in the world. They get assassinated or they make a mistake. And then the other side points at them and say, you see, you blew it. I mean, it was obvious it wasn't going to work. But but Netanyahu's overreach may piss enough people off that it might actually have a it might actually help you mobilizing people. It sounds like maybe I'm hoping so. And I, the main thing is that we have proven that we are absolutely resilient. Do you realize how many weeks we've been protesting him? And I'm not talking about in just a few people. We have been out. I went to the second demonstration. Was the first big one. We've done 25 weeks of demonstrations. Wow. Most of them on Saturday nights, but some of them also in the middle of the week. Some of them, when he tried to fire the minister of defense, 200,000 Israelis spilled onto the streets within a half hour. Amazing stuff. And that's hard to get people on from their busy lives to go out and protest. These are people who've never protested anything in their lives, many of these people. And we've conquered so-called the flag back. Uh, if you've noticed, all of our demonstrations have tremendous amounts of Israeli flags. I don't like that flag. I'd like to replace it with something which is more representative of all of our people, not of 80% of our people. I want to change our uh, national anthem to something that represents not 2,000 years of aspirations as the Jews have, but something that represents all of our citizens. But at least we've taken the flag back from the right wing. But the big thing that we've also succeeded in doing here was convincing. I talked, to this with, I talked about this with my friend today, who's the right winger. I said, one thing we've done, we've proven to you that we are no less lovers of our country and no less patriotic than you are. And I had that same conversation with Hilltop Youth. When they said that you're a traitor, and I said, excuse me, 
I don't remember seeing your father or anybody who looked like you when I was in Beirut serving in the first Lebanese war, or when I was in the Sinai, or when I was, I'm sorry, I don't remember seeing them. Maybe they were there, but, and eventually they understood that I love this country no less than anybody else. I'm just not willing to do horrible, horrific things to let us continue just because we want to continue. We have to deserve the respect of everybody, of all of the Israelis, of the Palestinians, of the Americans, and the rest of the world. I want us to be the light unto the nations. And that and is all of the intellect and everything to do it. We have to wrap up. So that's a good optimistic tone of the people. I mean, I think the people in Israel are an inspiration to yep. uh, democracies everywhere. All right, Moshe, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. And, uh, I really appreciate it. I have learned so much from you. I mean, my pleasure. I, I have learned a lot. My and, pleasure. And if the Netanyahu government accepts my invitation to be on here, maybe you can help me with some questions. I'll for be me. very happy to help you. And, <laughs> and, uh, if you. If people in the United States want to learn more about what's going on here in Israel now, we have our podcast, which is uh, we've done six installments of the Israel's Slippery Slope podcast. My friend and I talk about all of the developments, why we're doing what we're doing, what we're planning on doing, how we see the future of everything. So people are welcome. Is that on? Is that, that on YouTube? Is YouTube okay? So they go to Israel Slope Slippery Slope podcast yes. on YouTube. Is are there any websites for your organizations you want to mention? Or the Forum of Israeli Peace NGOs. We're going to be we're scheduling a the largest peace con conference ever in Israel's history in November. We're hoping to get international support from uh, Tony Blair, from the Clintons, and from others who took part in peace processes in the past. And uh, we hope that we're going to put the word peace, shalom, salam, back on the table for people to talk about instead of ignoring it or trying to deny it. Okay. Forum of Israeli Peace NGOs. My gentle right. listeners can Google that. We have to wrap up. I really, really okay, appreciate you. it, Moshe. Have a good night and shalom. You too. Shalom. Shukran. As always on Politics Considered, the views expressed by our guests are not necessarily those of the host or the show. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others. Uh -huh.